This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Brian Gujer, the Program Manager for CIO SP4 and the Acting Director of the NIH IT Acquisition and Assessment Center, or NITAC. Brian, welcome to the discussion. Thank you. Appreciate you having me. We are doing something a little different today. We're talking about a procurement, an up-and-coming procurement, as well as all the work that NITAC's been doing over the last year or so. Uh, there's a ton of interest, Brian, in this next government-wide acquisition contract, CIOSP4. You guys are about to release or just just will be releasing the RFP very soon. Tell me, what to discuss at a high level, what are some of the basics about the RFP, and what should vendors immediately know about it? NITAC is one of the largest IT contracts in government. It's, it's known for its customer service and its ability to take care of our customer IT needs and dollars in a short amount of time. And that's what we continue to want to build upon for COSP4. COSP4 RFP will release in, in mid to late March. Uh, proposals will be due April 30th. Uh, and then we'll move into our evaluation stage. And the main crux of the requirement is health IT. That's our niche. That's our challenge from OMB as an executive agent and as a BIC, best in class level three. There are 10 task areas, the first of which is health IT. And the vehicle really takes pride in having all socioeconomic categories represented, all types of smalls, uh, obviously including large as well. And the ability for our customers to have set-asides at the small socioeconomic category of their desire, the task order level, uh, throughout the duration of the contract. The ceiling is is $40 billion, and we expect this iteration, version 4, to have more contractors on it than ever before, and specifically more small businesses than ever before. Long range, we're looking at award in, in late January or early February of 2022. And we're, we're quite excited about the possibilities of CRSP4. So I know from covering this previously, one of the questions that, that brought it to my attention was you guys used to have a CIO, well, you guys do have a CIO SP3 small business and a CIO SP3 unrestricted. Did you decide in the end to combine both those contracts into just one CIO SP4? And as you said, have the ability to do set-asides? Uh, that's right. Yes, we did. So a number of reasons why we decided to do that. And I'll go through a couple with you. First and foremost, administrative burden. If you were previously on uh, both vehicles or you had multiple contracts on each vehicle, if you had multiple socioeconomic categories, now you had multiple files to take care of, multiple uh, modifications to take care of, multiple CPARs to take care of. And that, that really wasn't the best for both the government and private industry. Uh, next up, due to the success of CSP3, when some smalls graduated to the large vehicle, there was some time there where they couldn't see the solicitations and couldn't participate. And we don't want to have that happen again. We want everybody to see all the solicitations every single time. We also think that will enable some of our smalls to pair up with some of the larges on the vehicle for subcontracting possibilities. And we also think by having one solicitation and one contract, it speaks to the, the spirit of SICA, uh, Competition and Contracting Act. We didn't like that the large business contract previously was essentially a large business set aside. We really want everybody to have a full and open competition on the task orders at all times. Uh, and then finally, the ability to go to just one solicitation and one resulting contract does not in any way 
negate or reduce the opportunity for small business set-asides. They will still be very prevalent on the vehicle. We're a leader in small business dollars and percentages, uh, meeting our small business goals. So well over the 30% threshold that we're required to produce will be achieved again in the future. And, and we know that most agencies and departments are customers. Those IT managers out there with those IT dollars look to NITAC to increase their small business percentages so they can get credit as well uh, on their end. One of the things that comes up when you talk about re- reducing, creating one big contract with set-asides, does NITAC have any thoughts yet about how to ensure that agencies, just agency customers, just don't come to you and say, always go to the large business because there is that feeling of, I'm comfortable with company X, who's a large business, and I don't really know company Y, who's a small business, and I'll just go with X because if they fail, it's on them. But if I go with company Y and they're a small business and they fail, it's on me. Without having that specific small business contract that's, that's, that's you know, different. I mean, are you worried about that? Or is there some way you guys are trying to kind of get in front of that, that challenge? No, we're, we're not worried about that. That's just a, it's not factual. So the, the regulations, the FAR require that any requirement that can be fulfilled by a small business be reserved for small business. It's called the, the rule of two or more. If you've got two small businesses out there in industry that can perform the requirement, it must go to, to the small business arena. There's also a, a, a dollar threshold and a dollar threshold uh, is typically 250K, but we're going to contemplate putting in some additional dollar thresholds for HHS agencies and, and optives that require uh, under a certain dollar value, the uh, competition for task orders go to small businesses. So, so no, it's, it's incumbent upon each respective customer's department or agency's small business office who must sign off on the acquisition plan to discern and decipher the market research on NITAC to decide whether or not the requirement can go to just smalls or if it's truly uh, full and open. And if it does turn out that it it can't be fulfilled by small businesses, again, the full and open will still allow on NITAC on our EGO system, the electronic government ordering system, which is our synonymous with uh, beta SAM or old fit biz ops with the way in which NITAC does business on our EGO system. If that were to occur and it's something seemingly was not reserved for small business and had to go to large, the smalls again would still see it. And and this way they would be able to approach some of the larges, seeing which task areas they offer to try to match up and have a small business uh, subcontracting opportunity where previously the largest would go outside the NICTAC vehicle to bring in their own subs. So we feel that this enhances competition uh, at the prime level, but also it enhances competition at the subcontracting level as well. I think that's an important point to highlight. Did you hear that from small businesses or did you hear that from large businesses as a desire to have that NITAC even facilitate that type of connection? Yes, absolutely. We heard that all throughout the the spring of 2020 and the summer of 2020. We did a lot of industry days. The small businesses had a legitimate complaint that, you know, that it wasn't fair to them that they couldn't see all the solicitations. So yes, that is one of the reasons we switched. What were some of the other if you will, challenges, complaints, concerns that you heard during these industry days that then made it into the final RFP? One of them in particular was the number of pages required on industry to turn in their technical proposal was was simply too high. It was too laborious for them. 
And consequently, we took that to heart and have made some significant reductions in that area. Specifically, the technical proposal, and this is after the draft, we've made these changes, so it hasn't been put in writing yet. But the actual RFP that's coming out will have a significantly reduced amount of pages based on industry feedback. So we're going to go from 60 pages in the technical proposal down to 10. And our phased approach hopefully will allow more immediate feedback to industry to let them know where they stand, where the proposal stands, rather than wait or some, something of this consequence of this scale. Uh, most contracting vehicles, you might wait a year or two before hearing. And because of our phased approach, we really expect to be able to get back to offerors as early as the fall, so just six months, uh, whether or not they've advanced from phase one to phase two. Uh, so that's another good reason. As you talked about this multiple phase approach, one of the things that just occurs to me is there's a lot of innovations going on around government. You see, for instance, GSA, who also runs the several GWACs, using the unpriced master contract, for instance, for their Polaris contract. They also are using the self-scoring technique for Oasis. Did you guys look around and say, okay, what can we borrow or, or beg or steal from other agencies? And, and how did you apply it to CIOSP4? Because I'm interested to learn more about this phase, two, this, this multi-phase approach. We did take things from other agencies and departments that we really liked, and we combined them with some of our own. And the approach is as follows. It's three steps. The first step is your industry's self-scoring sheet. That self-scoring sheet will be filled out by each respective company and will reflect their corporate experience based on the work they've done for the government in the past. And when they compute their self-scoring sheet, Numbers will be assigned accordingly based on the dollar value of the contracts that they have previously performed. That will result in some total score at the bottom of the page out of 10,000 points. And it's important to note that each company, based on their business size, is competing to get on the GWAC only amongst companies of a similar size. So larges are only going against larges, and smalls are only going against smalls, and Furthermore, at the next level, each socioeconomic category of company is only competing against a company like them. So the line in the sand to move on from phase one to two is going to be different for each business size. Next up, phase two is a go, no go. And these are mandatory things that are in the RFP. Uh, we will check them to make sure that they are all met. And having been all met, you would advance into phase three. Phase three is a technical proposal review, uh, as well as a business proposal review. The technical proposal review consists of 10 pages. Uh, it is specifically five pages about task area one, which is the health IT, and that's, of course, our, our niche, and uh, a management plan, meaning how are you going to manage a contract of this size and scope associated with if you have any type of business arrangement, if you're in a CTA, contractor teaming arrangement, or a sub or a protege, meta protege, you're gonna discuss how that's working and who the people are and who the lead is. And then next, we'll check your past performance. Uh, it's in addition to the technical proposal. And then finally, your business proposal, which will consist of uh, 15 pages, um, uh, a spreadsheet as well, with all the labor categories and the prices, and then backup documentation. The technical proposal will receive an adjectival score. Uh, and then that, that combined with the past performance and the business proposal will result in a list of apparent successful offerors, as we call it, or, or essentially who has received a good enough score to move on to the um, award poll and who has not. But because of that phased approach, again, we expect to be able to 
narrow down the competition so much that there won't too many protests at the end because so many companies would have already been eliminated and would have been notified six, nine months prior. So we were really um, optimistic about the, uh, the phased approach and specifically about that self-scoring sheet because we, we've had a couple meetings with industry where a couple companies have, have realized or recognized that in at kind of an early stage that you know their score might not be good enough to really compete like they would like. So it's not it's not worth it for them to go ahead and risk the the bid and proposal costs and the time and energy it takes to propose on something of this scope. So we're we're really excited about this approach. And then finally, I, I just want to add that NITAC is unique in that we are both the program office and the contracting office, or the contracting shop as we call it. So we have tried to answer the call of our customers across the government, CIOs, IT managers, with the ten task areas. Uh, and put into uh, the language exactly what they would like to see, things like cloud computing, things like cybersecurity, things like agile. But at the end of the day, we, NITAC, also control the, the statement of work. It's ours, and we're doing the contracting for it. So it's a very kind of unique situation. Again, the GWAC is part 15, negotiation, um, and the task orders and delivery orders are part 16, a fair opportunity, which is quite different. So we, we jump into one lane uh, every 10 years, and we're in that lane now, part 15. And then for the next 10 years to award the task orders, it goes into part 16. Brian, on that note, let's take a quick break. My guest is Brian Goodger, the program manager for CIO SP4 and the acting director of NITAC. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Brian Goodger, the program manager for CIO SP4 and the acting director of NITAC. As the vendor self-scorer to go through the assessments, and as you said earlier on, they'll kind of weed themselves out and see that they don't qualify. But with 1,000 people bidding and only about 35 to 45% getting awards, the protest is a big concern. No acquisition is protest proof. I get that. Are you building that into your schedule as well? Because when does CIOSP3 end and do you have enough overlap? First off, CIOSP3 ends in mid-May of uh, 2022. And an, another reason we've moved to the phased approach, although the offerors will submit everything in total up front, the phased approach allows NITAC the opportunity to notify them immediately after the conclusion of each phase of whether or not they've advanced to the next phase. And in doing so, we will be able to start any protest clock immediately with those that did not make it from phase one to phase two. And you're right, likely some of them will protest, but we will work with those protests uh, commensurate with our evaluation in phase two. So the evaluation will continue as any protests come in. And we also have done some market research and talked to some other agencies and departments in that as the phases continue, the number of companies goes down, the number of protests go down. So that by the time we make the apparent successful offer or pool in, in late January, early February of 2022, and let's just, I'm going to pick a number, let's just say there's 400. I don't expect, but only about 405, no more than 410 to exist at that point. So now we're not talking about hardly any protests, right? You can almost probably count them on one hand. And that 100-day clock with GAO is still in place for timing it up with the uh, successful conclusion of COSP3. So that, that's why we're really driving hard for that end of January, early February award date, so that just in case we need those 100 days, they're built in there. One of the things that comes up is ensuring that 
you cast a wide enough net to bring in new companies. What's the plan for socializing the RFP? Well, I think we've done a pretty good job over the spring and summer of 2020 and getting out the various groups within industry uh, at all levels of IT and all business sizes. Our feedback tells us that we're going to set a record with the amount of proposals we're going to receive in terms of competition. It'll be more so than NITAC has ever previously had in its 20-year existence, and it'll probably be more so than almost any contracting government, period. We've got our work cut out for us to meet the expectations that we've laid out for ourselves and with industry to have an efficient review of the proposals. But in in terms of just hard numbers and competition, uh, we expect to be in the the four digits. Uh, We're going to have a comma in there with the amount of proposals we're going to receive. So the reach, the marketing, the ability to get this opportunity in front of industry has been a long, thorough process and, and one that we're quite confident will result in Uh, competition that is both healthy for NITAC, but also more importantly, healthy for our our customers, that we get them a wide array and diversity of companies on the vehicle that will make them want to use it for the next 10 years. Well, that that leads me to that bigger question then, and I'm not sure you can answer it yet, but if you think you'll be getting over a thousand proposals, (laughs) how many awards do you expect to make? Do you even know yet? Uh, we do. We set a range in the RFP in Section L. We spell out within each business size category how many we expect to make. That number is still fluctuating a little bit until we actually go live with the RFP here in mid to late March. But the number is likely to be somewhere between 350 and 450 awards. No acquisition is protest-proof. I get that. No, there's, you, you can plan for it. You can hope for the best and you can cross all your I's and dot all your T's, but you still may face protests. Are you building that into your schedule as well? Because when does CIOSP3 end and do you have enough overlap? Yes, exactly. And yes, great great points and questions. So uh, first off, CIOSP3 ends in mid-May of uh, 2022. And another reason we've moved to the phased approach is at the, although the offerors will submit everything in total up front, the phased approach allows the, us, uh, NITAC, the opportunity to notify them immediately after the conclusion of each phase of whether or not they've advanced to the next phase. And in doing so, uh, we will be able to start any protest clock immediately with those that did not make it from phase one to phase two. And you're right, likely some of them will protest, but we will work with those protests uh, commensurate with our evaluation in phase two. So the evaluation will continue um, as any protests come in. And we also have done some market research and talked to some other agencies and departments in that as the as the phases continue, the number of companies goes down, the number of protests go down. So that by the time we make uh, the apparent successful offer or pool in, in late January, early February of 2022, and let's just, I'm going to pick a number. Let's just say there's 400. I don't expect, but only about 405, no more than 410 to exist at that point. So now we're not talking about hardly any protests, right? I can almost probably count them on one hand. And that 100-day clock with GAO um, is still in place for timing it up with the uh, successful conclusion of COSP3. So that, that's why we're really driving hard for that end of January, early February award date. So that just in case we need those 100 days, they're built in there.
one of the things that comes up is ensuring that you cast a wide enough net to bring in new companies, different companies. What I hear time and again is how to get non-traditional companies involved, or at least maybe companies that maybe have been doing government contracting, but maybe haven't worked with NITAC before. What's the plan for socializing the RFP? Do you guys, you've had plenty of industry days. You've done plenty of interviews with people like myself, but once that RFP comes out, that's the real, okay, can we get people to bid that, you know, or maybe different new or, or, or provide a, a different perspective. What, what's your, what, what kind of plans do you have for that? Well, I think we've done a pretty good job over the spring and summer of 2020 and getting out the various uh, groups within industry uh, at all levels of IT and all business sizes. Um, our, our feedback tells us that we're going to set a record with the amount of proposals we're going to receive in terms of competition. Um, it'll be more so than NITAC has ever previously had in its 20-year existence. And it'll probably be more so than almost any contracting government, period. So we've we've got our work cut out for us to um, meet the expectations that we've laid out for ourselves and with industry to have a, an efficient review of the proposals. But in, you know, in terms of just hard numbers and competition, uh, you know, we expect to be in the, the four digits. Uh, you know, we're going to have a comma in there with the amount of proposals we're going to receive. So um, the reach, the, the marketing, the, the um, ability to get this opportunity in front of industry has been um, a long, thorough process and, and one that we're quite confident will result in uh, competition that is both healthy for, for NITAC, but also more importantly, healthy for our, our customers, that we get them a wide array and diversity of companies on the vehicle that will make them want to use it for the next 10 years. All right. Sounds like a good plan. And, and, and I know it's going to be, you guys have your, as you said, work cut out for you heading forward. Brian, we're just about out of time. I thought maybe we just could revisit CIO SP3 real quick. As I mentioned earlier, it's been a very successful program. Just give me some highlights from 2020 obligations, task orders, awards, anything that gives us a sense of just uh, how much uh, CIO SP3 was uh, able to accomplish in, in, in the last year. Sure. Absolutely. Uh, so we're we're pretty close to five billion dollars, uh, and that's a, a a pretty standard number for us over the last couple of years in terms of dollars per fiscal year onto the vehicle by our customers. Uh, the next one would be um, continually to to beat the small business goal, the percentage goal, which is thirty percent. Um, we were up in the high thirties, uh, and then and next up is is more of a friendly reminder that. Even though COSP3 is in its last year, as long as task orders are awarded on the last day of that last 10th year coming up in, in May of 2022, task orders can still go out in performance another five years. So uh, we, we wanted to make that a friendly reminder to our customers because uh, sometimes you hear some rumors in the, in the 10th year or the last year of an IDIQ or a big GWAC that business might start to go down because they think it's ending. That's, that's not true. The opportunity and the ability for the vehicle to take on continually throughout the last year additional requirements that, again, can go out three, four, five years remains consistent. And the NITAC program office and the NITAC customer service group are poised to answer any questions and work with customers as we approach the, the end of COSP3. And is there any concern on your end that you're going to hit your ceiling of COSP3? Five billion a year for five years, give or take, is twenty-five 
well, you're almost 10 years is, is 50, almost 50 billion. Is, is there, is there a concern there? Cause I know for instance, again, GSA hit their ceiling on their stars two contract and that, that caused a whole series of concern and, and, and anxiety among the contractors. No, there's not. We're, we're not near the ceiling as of yet. And then there's, there's also some, um, in government and, and, and OGC, um, who's opined on this and, and my feeling as well, that those other vehicles, um, do have a programmatic ceiling and ours is per contract tour. So uh, each contract tour could go up to that amount. So no, we're, we're, we're not uh, in danger of hitting the ceiling at all. All right. Well, good news. So you won't have to deal with that in your last year either. Yes, sir. All right, Brian, this has been a, a fascinating conversation. I learned a lot about, and, and I think there's a lot of excitement about CIOSP4. So uh, you, you, you will have your work cut out for you over the next uh, year or so. So let me thank my guest. Brian Goodger is the program manager for CIOSP4 and the acting director of the NIH IT Acquisition Assessment Center, or NITAC. Brian, thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you, Jason. Appreciate you having me. Let's take a break. In this next segment, we switch gears to talk to GSA about identity credential and access management. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. In the next two segments of the show, we talk about identity credential and access management. My guest is Darlene Gore, the Director of Identity Credential and Access Management in the Office of the IT Category in the Federal Acquisition Service at GSA. We're talking today about a new pilot program that GSA and the Postal Service has launched to really help agencies, help federal employees get their identity credential management, their, their PIV cards, whatever we're calling it these days. I, I always go back to HSPD-12 as one of my favorite acronyms to really help make it easier on them, especially during the pandemic. So let's just start at the beginning, discuss the, the, the pilot, how it came about, how long will it last? Give me some of the basics. How the pilot got started was really a conversation between OMB and GSA, the USSS program. Um, it was during the beginning of the pandemic where we were looking at services that were impacted by the mandatory telework requirements that the federal government had to do because of the pan pandemic. So OMB, GSA, myself, that's me, US Access, we had a conversation and we were looking for different solutions on how we could continue those services. And then OMB decided to make the introduction to the Postal United Postal Service. Hey, well, darling, um, do you think you want to meet some of the postal stakeholders? And I said, sure. And so I made a phone call to the US Postal Service based on that introduction. And that's how we started to explore the opportunities and the possibilities to continue the service using through a partnership of the Postal Service. The initial pilot was 90 days. It started in November. But I want to also point out that I think that's an important point that, is, uh, that I think is a kudos for the Postal Service too. We kicked off, after the introduction, we kicked off the planning for this pilot back in March. It took us about seven months planning, implementation, and actually execution for November live date. And that November started the first 90 days. And because the pilot was so successful and we received so really great feedback from the customers 
on their experience of, of going to get their cards at the Postal Service, we decided to extend the pilot an additional 90 days through May. Well, that's good news. It's always nice when you all or anyone gets such good feedback that uh, you want to extend it. So how many people have used the, the pilot facilities? Give me a sense of how it's worked. You go in, you bring what, and, 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 and then what happens? It's the same service. The backbone of the service is the USSS program. We're just using the postal sites to deliver those services. People use the same standard documentation. The agencies are responsible for sponsoring those individuals. The applicant or the individual is just able to go to the post office to conduct what we call the enrollment process, you know, taking your fingerprint, taking your pictures, ID proofing to make sure the individual is the person that the card is being issued to. So there's no changes to the process, to the USSS process. It's just where the service is, is where they, the customers can go to get that service. It made it easier for the customers. What kind of feedback? How many people have been through the process? Did, did you have any sort of count of how many people have used the, the pilot program areas where they can go to get their PIV cards? We are conducting daily surveys, one on the customer experience, how many customers are making appointments to include the weekend hours, which has been, customers really like the weekend hours. So right now we have approximately 4,000, about 500 completed appointments for PIV cards issuance to date. And that number continues to grow because we have some agencies that have surges at this time and the agencies have been able to take advantage of the postal sites to meet some of their surges need, search needs. Just let me clarify that. You said 4,500 completed appointments? Yes, okay. in 90 days. In, yes. in 90, that's great. And there's just those handful of pilot areas in the Washington, D.C. metro area, correct? That's correct. That's correct. For the pilot program, the extension of 90 days, it's still going to be those areas in the D.C. metro area? Yes. For the pilot extension, yes, it will be focused on the D.C. metro areas. Make sure that we capture any type of lesson learned as we try to plan for expansion or to other geographical locations. We want to make sure that we've We've got everything that we need, collected all the data that we need so that we can have a successful expansion moving forward in collaboration with the Postal Service and, you know, identify those sites that are, important, that are underserved by the, the agency. So this next 90 days is really, really keen on those factors. If we're going to expand, where would that location be? Where are those underserved locations? So we just want to just kind of pinpoint some of those pain points of the customers and then try to meet some of those needs as we try to phase in different expansions for the partnership. Now, previously, USA Access had some mobile units. So this idea is not necessarily new, but right. did you have specific places in the, just in the D.C. area that you went to and the Postal Service the idea behind the postal service was to give people more options, but also make it easier because of the pandemic. What's the, I guess, the before and after? So before we actually, our footprint expands to about 2,800 sites throughout the United States and some, some in Puerto Rico. Each agency's offer the service. They set up their sites to meet their employees' needs. What we do is deliver the service to those agencies. The agencies sign up for the service through the USSS program. 
And we, part of our service is delivering that equipment to that site, also offering the back end cards. Every agency that is a customer of the USSS program have sites in different parts of the United States, not just the Washington DC area. But because of the pandemic, a lot of those sites had to either minimize their services, you know, due to they want to minimize the risk of exposure, or even during the first two weeks in March when we had mandatory shutdown of the government, they had to shut those services down. So it wasn't, they weren't able to offer that or continue that service to the employees to ensure that they had their PIP card back. We have approximately about 350 sites, which we call share sites. And as you mentioned, Jason, you said the mobile credentialing units. Mobile credentialing units are deployed at each one of those sites, but there's a distinction. We have a, a, what we call the shared sites and we call the dedicated sites. What the shared sites do is open up to all of the agencies. It's not specific to just an agency. For example, if it's DOJ, it would service, it would service DOJ, DOT, all of the major agencies. The dedicated sites, which are just for that agencies, they only service their employees at that agency. So post-pandemic, what the U.S. Point Pilot offer, those shared sites that had to take an action due to the pandemic to ensure that you know exposure was minimized, where they had to make close it down to just their customers, some of the shared sites services were interrupted due to that. The postal sites, post-pandemics, the postal sites will help continuity of operation, continue those services where agencies, especially some of those smaller agencies that don't have a site, that they don't have a credential unit at their sites, the postal sites would allow us to continue those shared service sites because number one, the postal, the postal service is mission central and they, their personnel is there all the time. So they would not be impacted by any type of pandemic or any type of, you know, maybe government closure or shutdown or anything like that. So the focus would be to continue those services to allow the other agencies to issue PIV cards. When you talk about this pilot, what are some of your measures of success? We did establish measurements early on. And one of those measurements was the customer experience. Through our surveys, when an applicant goes to get service at a postal site, we immediately send them a survey. We want to know about what your experience about. The 90 days, the first 90 days, we had a 95% approval, satisfaction. The second thing that we thought about for this pilot is efficiency through consistency. What the postal offered us is a consistent way of processing PIP cards. We normally allot like 17 minutes for processing and enrollment. The postal services, because they have the same clerks, they're really focused on making sure they offers uh, that customer experience. They have decreased that time down to like 14 minutes. And so to me, that spells efficiency. Darling, on that note, let's take a quick break. My guest today is Darling Gore, the Director of Identity, Credential, and Access Management at the IT category in the Federal Acquisition Service at GSA. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. 
Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Darlene Gore, the Director for Identity, Credential, and Access Management at the IT category in the Federal Acquisition Service at GSA. Three minutes, someone may say, oh, that doesn't seem like a lot. But if you can, again, because of the pandemic, because of exposure issues, if you can limit the amount of time you have to, someone has to deal with you or you have to deal with somebody, that, that's an important decrease. And obviously, the feedback you're getting from the customers, as you said, is very positive. What are some of the, if you can, share some trends, some, some high-level things you're seeing from customer surveys? Most of the trends that we've been seeing, they said this was the easiest appointment they've ever experienced. Another one was that the clerks was highly professional. Great idea that we're offering this service to in the postal sites, and could we look at ways of expanding that service? But mostly, it, it was really their experience, and that's, and that's what we focused on, is that what was the customer experience going to that site? Was it different from going to any of our other sites? And they met and exceeded our expectation as if they were going to a federal site as well. So um, they found that it was so easy. So if I had to highlight one, it was easy and professional. And this is just Jory jumping in here. Darlene, just to maybe elaborate on a point that you had made a, a moment ago here, and maybe this is insight you may not necessarily have into the program, but you had mentioned that with you know agency PIV card offices being closed, at least for you know some of the early stages of the pandemic, is the pilot that we're talking about here with the post offices, are they still trying to fill in that kind of demand for offices, PIV card offices that remain closed or... Uh, just help me better understand, I guess, the the demand that this pilot is helping to uh, support here. Well, absolutely. There's still a demand for the services, especially when I described earlier, um, when some of those shared sites that have gone dedicated, meaning that they're only going to service their agencies. And so that's that leaves some of those agencies that don't don't have a site or don't have a credential unit deployed. And of course, the USSS program do assist those agencies by negotiating and by collaborating with the other agencies that have decided to go dedicated to continue that services. But it, it fills that gap. It actually, it, 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 it fills the gap and it still allows agencies. And I'm, while we focus on the DC areas, because like I mentioned before too, we, we really needed to understand if the customers were receptive of the idea, the possibilities of this partnership and to ensure you know, that it could work. So yes, it was very important for us. This partnership is very important to us as well as continuing the service is very important for us. So those agencies that may not, that probably were impacted by because an agency have gone to dedicated, the US point pilot offered that service. Now I know you're using this next 90 days to plan for, for potential, okay, how do we roll this out broader? Do you have some ideas that you'd be willing to share about what the future of this uh, pilot would look like? Because we're still in the planning phase and we're still collecting data on what the implementation plan would look at. Um, we don't uh, have any ideas at this time. Maybe in the nice 90, after this 90 days, we would have some, but at this moment, we're still in the planning phases for implementation, potential full implementation. Just about out of time before I let you go, Darlene, we talked about the pilot quite a bit. Other things that are on your plate for the U.S. Access Program, or are there things 
uh, other priorities that you have for 2021 you, you'd like to mention? The USSS program really would just really like to focus on how do we leverage the U.S. partnership, U.S. Postal Service partnership to expand the identity services, the federal identity service. So that's one of the things that, you know, we will be looking at doing the pilot. And also the focus have been for this pilot that I just, it's really for sustainability to continue to continue to deliver the services, the U.S. access services without any interruption. And that's one of the goals. I think that should be the goals for any services, for our services especially, because we touch so many federal agencies. So this partnership will allow us to um, really act on continuing those services. A lot of agencies during the pandemic also went to kind of touchless credentials, right? Where you didn't have to come in, we, they would get a derived credential. Uh, there's been some rewrites I know of HSPD 12 or, or the, the uh, FIPS 201-1- whatever it's up to by now. I didn't know if those changes would, 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 would influence or impact the U.S. Access Program in terms of what, how you all want to continue to evolve. Well, I mean, you know, absolutely. Um, emerging technology does drive identity management, and we continue to look for ways for improvement. Are we exploring those possibilities? Absolutely, because that's how we prove the services that we deliver to our customers. But at this point, um, for us, it's really just about planning and and really getting good at this partnership first before exploring those other possibilities, such as you know, touchless, uh, what you're speaking on, you know, remote ID, which uh, NIST has approved. Uh, uh, so we have to focus really on making sure there's no interruption in this service. And then the next steps, as we as we do well on this partnership and, and continue to deliver this service, will be to explore those other emerging technologies. And because we, con we constantly look at those things, but to deliver them in this, after this pilot, I think the focus would be how we expand our footprint. If, you know, once we um, ensure that this partnership, uh, this potential partnership will work for expanding our uh, footprint, those are our focus. And then we can start exploring the other emerging technology in the identity credential management space. Darlene, this has been a great conversation. I learned a lot. So thank you so much for your time. Let me thank my guest, Darlene Gore, the Director of Identity, Credential, and Access Management for the IT category at Federal Acquisition Service in GSA. Darlene, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.